This message by Bill Kittrell was recorded during a Sunday celebration service for Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Bill serves as a senior pastor on staff at Cornerstone Church. Your Bibles with me to Philippians chapter 3. Thank you for turning in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. After Mike's comments, I have this feeling this better be a good message, you know? <laughs> well, I listened, I wasn't distracted, but uh, I didn't get much out of that. <laughs> Philippians chapter 3, my confidence this morning is in God's Word. His Word is true, it's an errand, it's a gift for us. I believe He will speak to each and every one of us this morning. Thank you, Lord, for Your Word. Philippians chapter 3, today, in our series, we are in verses 17 down through 21. Paul says, Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Amen. This is a call to walk with God. This is, this is a call to live a life full of hope, to have a lifestyle It comes from being heavenly minded. Our text is about walking. Verse 17, walk according to the example you have in us. Verse 18, many walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. It's about living life a certain way. It's about lifestyle. Walk is Paul's favorite term to refer to the lifestyle. What we would call a lifestyle of a believer. It's not surprising that he would use this term because it's an Old Testament term. It's used frequently there. And it it refers to a life characterized by a person who has a relationship with God and obeys His commands. They walk with God. The heroes of the faith walked with God. 
They sought God. They waited on God. They worshipped God. If you've been reading through the Bible with us in our, our Heart for Scripture program, you've been reading through the Psalms. Hopefully, like John Piper said, God invented Facebook to remind us we really do have time to read the Bible. I, I, I hope you've discovered we really do have time to read the Bible. And you've been going through Psalms, the longest book in the entire Bible. It begins with this introduction. Blessed is the man who walks, not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf doesn't wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. And therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish because of the path that they walk on, because of their lifestyle. Scripture throughout tells us there are two ways to live. There's a path of blessing and there's a path of destruction. If we walk with God in the end, there will be blessing. We'll be a happy man. I heard one translator say, call it, you'll be a congratulations man or a congratulations woman. That's what the word blessed means. This is this is what Paul has in mind in our text. We will be like a tree that always has water. In the long term, in the right season, you will always blossom. You will always bear fruit walking with God. And no, notice that the focus is always on the end, where the path leads. Walking with God is choosing long-term faithfulness. Over short-term, instant gratification or benefit. Wisdom says, invest today, invest your life today for the long term. There's another path, another lifestyle you can choose. The way of the wicked will perish. Or as Paul says here in verse 19, their end is destruction. That's where it's going. This way is often easier, isn't it? In the beginning, it's easier. That's why the path of destruction is enticing. But in the end, the way of the wicked will perish. It leads to destruction. And so, the path of blessing, walking with God, can feel un-American. Doesn't fit with our culture, does it? It often means denying short-term pleasure for long-term gains. Men and women who choose this path swim upstream. They delay gratification. It feels un-American. It's hard to do in our culture. The deceiver presents the bait and hides the hook. I'm a fisherman, a fly fisherman. I fish for trout. I take the hook and I disguise it with feathers and fur and other materials. If I was fishing for bass, that wouldn't be necessary because they're dumb. But I fish for trout. 
Because I have to be a, a deceiver. I have, to, I have to have them think, oh look, another mayfly innocently floating down the river just like the other ones I've eaten today. And then when they take it, it's too late. They discover there's a hook. In our text, we learn about the enemies of the cross. It's imparting discernment to us today. We need this. They present the bait, but they hide the hook. They promise Short-term gratification, but in the end, leads to destruction. Our text today imparts discernment. And we need it living in 21st century America. So we can avoid being deceived. If we're to walk according to the example we have in Paul and those who follow him, we need to heed his encouragement and his warning to the Philippians that we find here. So that we might be more discerning, let's consider Paul's example, Paul's mindset, and Paul's hope. Number one, Paul's example. Brothers, verse 17, join in imitating me and keep your eyes, focus on those who walk according to to the example you have in us. Imitate me or those who are imitating me. It's a, it's a transitional verse. It connects with what Paul's already written and what he's about to write. This verse brings into focus Christian character. He's been, he's been talking about how to grow in the Christian life. He's given instructions, if you remember about the characteristics of a mature believer. And now he takes on the role of mentor. He's going to instruct through his example, through modeling. He, he teaches truth, but he also applies truth. He's a leader. And he applies truth in his own life so that he's a model. So that you can learn, not just from his instructions, but from his life. Join in imitating me. Walk according to the example you have in us. Now we know from studying this book a lot about the Apostle Paul, we knew that he saw the surpassing value of knowing Christ. Paul lived to know Christ more. He lived a cross-centered life because that is a life that is Christ-like. Back in chapter 2, the great Christ hymn, this, this hymn that tells us so much about our Lord and Savior. In chapter 2, verse 8, being found in human form, Christ humbled himself by becoming obedient to, to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. That's the ultimate model. That's a cross-centered life. D.A. Carson says, Paul can't long talk about Christian joy or Christian ethics or Christian fellowship or the, the Christian doctrine of God or anything else without finally tying it to the cross. Paul is gospel-centered. He's cross-centered. It's his example. It's what he modeled. It's what it is to be Christ-like. It's how we walk with God. It's the centerpiece of all of Paul's theology. It, it wasn't just 
one of his message. It was his message. He taught about many things, but it always came back to the cross. Came back to Christ and Him crucified. And now he says, join in imitating me. And keep, keep your eyes on those who walk like me, who have a lifestyle like me, a cross-centered lifestyle. Focus on them. Let that become your lifestyle. Remember, he had talked about Timothy and Epaphroditus. We talked about them a few weeks, weeks ago. They lived cross-centered lives, so he honors them. He puts them up front. They were not selfishly ambitious. There's a problem in the church with selfish ambition and pride. But these men, they put the interests of others above their own. They lived a cross-centered life. So Paul says, keep your eyes on those guys. Follow their example. Models are tools. We grow and learn by seeing models. And Paul knows his readers. And God knows we need examples like this. If we're going to learn, if we're going to apply truth in our lives, we need mentors. It's not just a good idea. It's biblical. It's God's Word. If you look down in chapter 4, verse 9, he says it again. What? You have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things. It's how we learn. I have a grandson that recently turned three and learned at his birthday party that he can't blow out candles. So they lit his candles and... <clears throat> He started trying to blow, and his dad was beside me, and he said, he kind of struggles with this. <laughs> I'd call that more than struggling. The, the kid can't blow out candles. Finally, they, they gave him a straw, and so he could blow through the, the straw, and he blew out the candles. It's a great idea, but I'm not sure it's going to work well when he turns 30. You know, we, we really need to work on this. Now, I'm confident he's going to learn. He's going to learn to blow out candles before he's 30. But he won't learn it from a textbook. They won't, they won't get down a textbook. Okay, read this, do a paper on it. He'll learn because... They'll show him how to blow out candles. He'll, he'll learn by watching someone. We, we learn so much by following mentors, by learning from examples. It's, it's so helpful. It's more than helpful. It's critical. And that's why it's so important for the church to be multi-generational. I'm glad there's a connect lunch today with those over 50. I'm glad you're still alive. <laughs> Wish I was 50. Boy, I'd love to be at that lunch today. <laughs> Just a little joke. It, it's so good to have a church of generations for this very reason. Older folks, whether they're older in the faith or older in age, they show us the way, don't they? Parents are such a gift. Pastors are a gift. Older believers in the Lord, they can show us, they can model for us, they can be an example for us, and they can tell us about their mistakes. 
They can come in and tell you how it's going to end on that path. They know about it. They'll, they'll confirm God's word has proven true in my life. It's, it's a wonderful blessing to have them. And Paul wants us to find mentors in the church who can encourage us. That's why I'd really encourage all the women to go to the legacy groups. Paul wants others to follow his pattern of life. And he's inviting them to join others in all the churches. This wasn't just in Philippi. This was join others who are imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. He isn't omnipresent. He's in prison in Rome. He can't be in Philippi. So he says, find the models in your church. Here's what John Piper writes. Paul says, it is spiritually wise to consider not just Jesus' life and not just the lives of those who follow him, but also the lives of those who follow those who follow him. This seems to imply that the line of inspiration and imitation goes on and on. Indeed, it does. And the centuries are laden with the lives of saved sinners whose failures and triumphs of grace are meant to inspire and strengthen and guide the rest of us. So among all the other things you do to grow in the knowledge and grace of Christ, follow Paul's summons to fix your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Let's pause for a minute and say, what is your lifestyle like? What is, what is our lifestyle like? What's my lifestyle like? Is it cross-centered? Or are we living for short-term gratification? Are we walking with God, trusting in His promises? Are we a good example? We need examples. This, this text is calling us to find cross-centered models, and it's calling us to be cross-centered models. Jerry Bridges came to mind as I was thinking about that. He, he became a friend of mine. He's, he's gone to be with the Lord. We have a lot of his books in the bookstore. I commend them all to you. But what a joy and privilege it was to get to know him. And I, I thought about models in my life. Jerry Bridges was truly a humble man. And as I got to know him, he was an example. And I always said, when I grow up, I want to be like Jerry Bridges. I want to be like him. I, I want to follow him because he had a cross-centered life. Now sadly... Some do not walk this way. Their, their lifestyle isn't a cross-centered lifestyle. They're dangerous because they're deceptive. And they will lead you down the wrong path. We need to beware of the deceivers. Verse 18. For many, okay, 
many of whom I have often told you. This isn't the first time Paul said this. And now tell you even with tears. He wasn't happy about it. He was crying as he said it. Walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. They're not cross-centered lives. They're enemies of the cross. This verse is a warning. There are alternatives to godly examples. And they're in the church. They're not men and women who claim to be unbelievers. The Philippians wouldn't be tempted to follow them. They're in the church. They don't deny the cross theologically. They, they confess the same truths as everybody else in the, tr- in the church did. It's their lifestyle that makes them an enemy of the cross. Their lifestyle is not cross-centered. They put their own interests first. It's why their seeds of division are in the church in Philippi. They don't walk in humility. They're enemies of the cross. They're enemies of that kind of lifestyle. They aren't obedient like Christ to the point of death. They don't want to suffer with Christ. And Paul says, their end is destruction, verse 19, their God is their belly, they glory in their shame, their minds are set on earthly things. He gives a lot of details. The Philippians knew exactly who he was talking about. They are sensual. Their God is their belly. They live for these short-term sensual desires and pleasures. Their glory, they glory in their shame, their goals. Remember Paul's glory. He glories in Christ. Their goals are different. Their New Year's resolutions are different. What they value is shameful. It's self-focused. They don't value knowing Christ. Their minds are set on earthly things. They're after things like clothing and food and position and power. They don't consider the interests of others. They have their focus on their own interests. They're not heavenly minded. They're they're selfishly ambitious. They serve themselves. And these Philippians need discernment. That's why Paul said, there's many of them, and I've told you often, and now I say it again with tears, they're dangerous. Warning, there's a warning here for us. D.A. Carson, again, every generation produces some of these deceivers. They talk a good line, dupe the unwary and the undiscerning, And they parade themselves as Christian leaders. Our our generation is no different. Every generation produces them. It can seem like we're the best at producing them. Maybe it's just that there's so many ways they can influence Christians. It makes it feel that way. But they're experts at injuring faith, experts at discouraging true discipleship. They sound like believers, they know the gospel, they know theology, 
They parade themselves as Christian leaders. They often have impressive credentials. What you want to find is somebody with a forestry degree and leave it at that. (laughs) Totally kidding. Rick has two doctorates, I think. But he lives a cross-centered life. They do not do this. Their glory isn't Christ. Watch out. Be warned. Secondly, number two, Paul's mindset. His perspective, his outlook, his way of thinking. Let's try to capture this. It's very important in this next application of this text, I think, for us that's so critical. He's giving a compelling reason here to follow his command in verse 17 to imitate him. Verse 20, but in contrast to these enemies of the, of the cross, our citizenship This is Paul's perspective, his mindset. Our citizenship is in heaven. And from from heaven, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a great difference between these enemies of the cross and their mindset and perspective and the citizens of heaven, Paul's perspective. Believers are citizens of heaven. They're awaiting a Savior from there. And Paul is calling his readers to focus their attention on this because it's a life-changing way of thinking. There are political overtones in this. If you want to get politics right, now I have your attention, be heavenly-minded. Think about it. Citizenship. Paul uses this word here in verse 20. That his first readers would have known that word very well. They knew exactly what citizenship meant. It was a reference to government, the sovereign power of the government. These are people who lived under the authority of Rome. And Paul uses this this word to emphasize that Christians are are members of a heavenly kingdom governed by Christ. They had a governing authority above Rome in heaven. They're they're a community. We're a community of heavenly citizens. That's his perspective, his mindset. It means we're foreigners in this country or whatever country you're from. We're, We're foreigners. We're living in exile in a foreign country. We pledge allegiance to the government of our home country, heaven. I, I thought about this, and I, th- I think to really grasp this, we need to kind of go back to first century Rome. I, when I was growing up in the 60s, not the 1800s, the 1960s, there was a, one of my favorite shows that really affected my life, believe it or not, was called The Time Tunnel. 
was only on for one season. I'm so tempted to say, has anybody ever heard of the time tunnel? Because I don't think anybody would have. But for one season, 1967, I was seven years old, Project TikTok was on every week, a top secret U.S. government effort to send people back in time. And they had this tunnel. That's why they called it the time tunnel. You would go in the time tunnel, would spin around. It was a top secret government project buried 800 feet under the ground in Arizona. Kevin Chip has been there. He's told me about it. 12,000 employees. In fact, it was... In today's dollars, it would have cost $56 million. So the government was going back to congressmen were coming in to check it out. So these guys that were in charge of it dove into the time tunnel because they thought the government was going to shut it down, and they went back in time. And the whole series is about them just going from one place to another. They went to the Titanic as it was sinking, Pearl Harbor, Custer's Last Stand. And you, you got a taste. You just you went back in history. And you could really appreciate what was going on. I, th I think to recognize this morning how this text applies to us, it's always important to have historical context. But when you talk about government and politics, when Paul speaks to that, you, you, really, you really need to appreciate. We need to go through the time tunnel back to first century Rome. He's writing to Roman citizens. That's why he uses the word. It's a leading city in a Roman colony. How would they have understood the word citizenship? Very different than us. Very different. How would they have understood his reference to Christ as Savior and Christ as Lord. This would have had special significance to these readers because they were in a Roman colony. And Philippi had received the privilege of being governed by Rome, a constitutional government. They were on equal footing with the cities in Italy. Their official language was Latin. That was the language of Rome. They oriented their lives. The citizens of Philippi oriented their lives to Rome in a way that's difficult for us to understand. Their allegiance was to Rome. And then here comes Paul. Christians have an opposing claim. Their governing power is in heaven. We, verse 20, await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In the Roman Empire, Caesar Augustus was acclaimed to be the Savior of the world. He brought order. He brought peace throughout the Roman Empire. These titles were used for Caesar. It, they, they expressed undivided allegiance to him. And Paul uses the word Savior in a letter to Christians in Roman Philippi intentionally. His point, Christ is the Savior, not the Roman Empire. It's subversive. 
Paul is using a term Roman citizens use for Caesar to describe Jesus Christ. He's redirecting. He has a different mindset, a perspective, a worldview. He's redirecting the focus of his readers from the Savior in Rome, Caesar Augustus, to the Savior in heaven, Jesus Christ the Lord. He, he uses these titles intentionally to undermine their use in the Roman Empire. The enemies of the cross set their minds on earthly powers. They, they got along just fine with the culture. They were applauded by the culture. But the Christians are called to focus their trust and hope in the Lord and say, it's going to cause problems. You can see it coming and it did. The enemies of the cross, they weren't going to suffer with Christ. They lived like the other citizens. They looked to the emperor in Rome to exert his sovereign power to solve their problems, to satisfy their desires, to rescue them from trouble, to protect them from danger. They were applauded by the culture. They didn't suffer for Christ. But followers of Christ, they follow his example. Where is Paul? He's in prison in Rome writing this letter. And he looked to Christ as his Savior and Lord. And so he shares in the sufferings of Christ. Heavenly-minded believers will not see themselves, first of all, as citizens of the United States or any other earthly nation. First, we are citizens of heaven. Our executive is Christ. Only, only this citizenship lasts. Isaiah 45, Paul was thinking of this as he wrote Philippians. He had a special love for the book of Isaiah. Truly, you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel, the Savior. Old Testament. Who, who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord, and there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior? There is none besides me. Turn to me. And be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn. From my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. And you remember this from the Christ hymn. To me every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall swear allegiance. That's the Savior. That's Almighty God. That's the that's what's behind this letter to the Philippians. Paul had a conviction. God alone is Savior and Lord. Finally, number three, that brings us to our final consideration. Paul's hope, verses 20 and 21. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. There is no one more powerful. No one's going to supplant the Lord Jesus Christ. He has power that enables him to rule all creation. And the lifestyle that Paul wants us to live, he wants us to walk in a way 
that lives in the light of this Christ returning. Christians in every generation have cried out, Come, Lord Jesus. Come. They knew He had promised to come again at the end of the age. And Paul's hope was on this return of Christ. And this morning we need to ask, is it ours? I was so encouraged by the songs today. It was the focus of the songs. That, that, I didn't know we were doing that. Probably wasn't listening during our meetings. <laughs> but this must be the, the ultimate hope of all Christians. When Christ returns, then our redemption will be complete. Right now, we've already experienced the kingdom, but not fully, not yet. And it will be full when he returns. And that's why the church is always a community of hope. All the members are looking forward to the appearance of their Savior. They love the good things of this life. We enjoy them, but they, they know it's all temporary. It's all fleeting. And they live for eternity. Paul's in prison. Christians in Philippi are suffering for their faith. But they're dominated by hope. It's, it's very different from those who set their minds on earthly things. Their hope is in heaven. They're living for eternity. They, they're waiting for the intervention of a Savior. He's coming from heaven. And that's where their true home is. It's where their true citizenship is. It's their destiny. And this is the only explanation for Paul's view of suffering. You read about all that he suffered and his joy in suffering. It, it, it can only be explained by this hope that he had. He identifies with Christ. He believes his sufferings in this world will end in the glory of Christ's return. He, he doesn't think his sufferings can even begin to compare with that glory. That's his hope. There's going to be a vindication. Just like when Christ was raised from the dead, there was a vindication. He wasn't a common criminal. When he returns, it's going to be the ultimate aha moment. It's going to be the ultimate moment. And every believer is going to be vindicated. We got to have this hope if we're going to pursue Paul's model. If we're going to imitate Paul, you got to have this hope. I remember when my dad died and I was at his gravesite before the burial, pick, picking out the gravesite or just making sure we knew where it was. And I was with some heavenly minded farmers that kind of worked with the graveyard. And they knew my dad. And they began to preach to me about heaven. And I will never forget it. No theologian could have communicated more hope and faith than those two farmers. And I had... My dad was my closest friend. And 
I was very sad. I was grieving. But they encouraged my hope. And it deeply affected me as I thought about Christ. And I thought about what my dad had experienced and what we all one day would experience. That's Paul's hope. That's his model. Verse 21 says he, he's going to transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. By the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. When he re- returns, Paul was anticipating this. When he returns, he's going to transform our bodies. We have a body of humiliation now. But in the future, our body is going to be gloriously resurrected. It's going to be redeemed. It's going to be changed. After Jesus was raised from the dead, he, he was seen by eyewitnesses, hundreds of eyewitnesses. And they wrote about it and they told about it. And he had a body. And it's a glorious body. And, and Paul hopes for this. Paul believes this, that when Christ returns, you will have a glorious body, like his body. It's called the body of his glory in 1 Corinthians 15. is isn't like our present body. It isn't corruptible. It doesn't decay. It's glorious and powerful. Perfect health. Unlimited energy. How will he do this? By his power. The text is telling us today to walk with God. Keep your eyes on those who walk with God. Walk with God. Be a model. Let this be your perspective. Even if you're locked in a dark prison and bound in chains, let this be your perspective. Let this be your hope. Remember when Paul and Silas planted the church in Philippi? They're in prison. It's midnight. What are they doing? They're singing hymns of praise to the Lord. He's still doing it. He's still in prison. He's in prison again, and he's still doing it. And he's saying to us, hope in God. Walk with God. Lord, I pray this morning that your word would encourage our faith and comfort us, Lord. I pray that we would be changed and molded and transformed. I pray that we would be a community of disciples who are not enemies of the cross, but are models of what it means to have a lifestyle, to live cross-centered lives for the glory of God. Lord, we love you. The cross has transformed us, and we desire to be those kinds of disciples. And we ask for your grace in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message given by Bill Kittrell during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865 
694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.